0: We're in Acts chapter 7. I think I'll turn this... um, Okay, let's see. Yeah. So it says all 60 verses. I'm not going to read all 60 verses. I'll tell you why in just a bit. But let me read um, chapter 7. 1-10 1-10 through 10, and yeah 1-10 through 10, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do hopefully this is the perfect word of our perfect God the high priest said are these things so and he said hear me brothers and fathers the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran he said to him leave your country your relatives come into this land I'll show you Then he left the land of the Chaldeans settled in Haran <clears throat> from there after his father died God had him move to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised him that they would give it to him as a possession to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, says God. After that, they will come out and serve me in this place. He gave him the covenant of circumcision. and So Abraham became the father of Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. God's word. Let's pray. We're so thankful, Lord, that you reveal yourself to us in nature. The sun, the moon, the stars, the wind, and the waves, the seasons all testify that you are the God that is and that you are mighty and powerful and even good. But, Lord, that revelation doesn't show us what we find here, that we are sinners and that your Son, Jesus Christ, is the only Savior how we thank you for the Bible. Lord, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you, Lord God, that you put them in writing to protect against the corruption of men and the malice of the devil. And we thank you, Lord, being in America as English speakers. We thank you for the labor of um, the English reformers, for men like Tyndale and so on, that gave us the Bible in, in a language that we could understand, to hear the very word of God in our own common language. Thank you, Lord God, for the for the translation work and the missionary endeavors of brothers and sisters in the world that take this word to the four corners of the earth in a language that the people themselves can hear and they can understand. And so come to see that they're sinners and find Christ as their Savior. Be with us now, Lord, as we consider the trial of this servant, even Stephen. Help us learn the lessons that you would have for us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I've had so many different plans for this particular sermon and for this particular chapter. It's been changing over the past week. It's a massive chapter, sixty verses. It's it's massive. There are probably legitimately four, five, six sections if I were to divide, which I have done, divided this particular chapter up into what I would call preaching portions or just segments that are related to one another. You have what we're looking at here this morning in verse 1 is the beginning of the trial. Stephen's on trial for being a blasphemer. And then from 2 to like 50 he makes his defense. And then I think 50 to 53 he makes the application of this defense from redemptive history. He makes it to himself. And then at the very end you obviously have the death, the stoning death of Stephen that first New Testament um, <clears throat> martyr. I want to say it's Martin Lloyd-Jones just in... I think I can have maybe, I don't know, three, four sermons out of this particular chapter is now my new intention. <clears throat> if you think, well, that's going too slow. Martin Lloyd-Jones, well, I, I can't hold Martin lloyd Jones's bags, obviously. But I want to say he has six or seven sermons from this chapter. So... Um, it's not strange. My intention um, is to read a little bit e- each week and then within what we read to kind of back up and look at some of the, the main points, so the main divine truths that God has placed within this particular chapter. The, the chapter, obviously, just if you've read chapter 7 or you know the account of Stephen, is obviously the account of the trial of Stephen it's what I'm going to refer to as a church trial. I understand the context, but just permit me the use of the word church, meaning household of faith. So it's a church trial. It's a religious trial. He's been accused of being a heretic, a blasphemer, and he's being permitted somewhat to make a defense of his teaching, of his person before the... This is the, the Sanhedrin. It's the highest Jewish court of the day. It's a religious court. Uh, the people of God here at this time are a subjugated people. The Bible says in Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall depart from Judah. They'll be uh, subjugated under Gentile Romans, and then Messiah will come. Messiah is coming, <clears throat> obviously. And, but the people of God are uh, under the Roman boot, as it were. So this is... They've been, the, the right of, uh, of uh, capital punishment has been taken away from them. So it's a religious trial. Jesus himself had religious trials before the high priest and then before the Sanhedrin, much like Stephen, and then he had a civil trial before Pontius Pilate. So the Jews condemned Christ to die, and then the Gentiles condemned Christ to die. And it will be the Jews, it will be a church trial, that will condemn Stephen uh, to die. So it's a trial, but if I could back up even further to understand really what's going on with Stephen. Stephen is the first deacon, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he's a good man, he's a godly man, He's been preaching and teaching Christ. He's confounded people at the the synagogue that we looked at last week. They can't answer him. He's been accused before the Sanhedrin, which is the high priest plus 70 elders, this highest Jewish court. What's going on in the book of Acts is the extension of the kingdom of Christ. That's what's happening. That's why we read faith, uh, chapter 14 in our confession, which is just a summary of what we as Presbyterians believe the Bible teaches. Paragraph 3 says our faith may be small or large, but it gets the victory. And one of the, one of the ways that our faith grows is to be opposed. Um, and it's much like anything. If you lift weights, the more that you kind of have trauma to your muscles, I suppose they grow. The, the, you get better at marathoning by, by, by marathoning, by opposition. We grow stronger in the Lord Jesus Christ the more that we practice or exercise our faith, the more that we're caused to use it. And so I maintain, and I think we see it here, that um, harder times are better for our spiritual growth in Jesus Christ. And so Stephen is in a hard time, but God's gonna use this hard time to grow Stephen individually, uh, more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, to exercise his faith, he's gonna need it more, and then to grow the church uh, collectively, quantitatively. We, We found out in the previous chapter that many, many priests came to faith. Through, through this kind of a ministry. And so initially they opposed the Lord Jesus Christ and they hated him, they hated his servants, but the servants persisted. And then there were some that God rescued from their enmity or warfare and made them children of God. There's a place in Luke chapter 6 that says about God that he is kind and merciful. Do you know what uh, this passage? He is kind and merciful to what kind of people? Evil and ungrateful people. Who are the evil and ungrateful people that God is kind and merciful to? Raise your hand. That's us. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we are uh, unkind and unmerciful and evil and ungrateful and wicked people, and God is kind and merciful to us, and how do we know that? The Father sends the Son. So when Stephen is sent before this Sanhedrin, he's been sent there to defend himself and the way that he defends himself, which we'll look at in further sermons, if the Lord God gives me further sermons, is he gives this flyover view of redemptive history. They're going to say, you're a heretic, you're a blasphemer. And he's going to say, no, I'm not. This is the stuff of the Bible. And he's going to go, Bible, 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 Bible. And they're going to go, you know what? We don't care what the Bible says. We're going to kill you. But it's Bible, 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 Bible. And he's going to say, the Bible says Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus. But it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus before what kind of folk? People that are going to kill him, but not everyone. God will take a former enemy, a former person that would kill Christ, kill a servant of Christ, and then in due time make him what? A Christian. Who's holding the coats of the people that stone Stephen? Saul of? And Saul of Tarsus becomes what? The greatest human, ordinary Christian on the planet, he writes what two thirds of the New Testament, thirteen or fourteen of the epistles of the New Testament. The greatest evangelist the world has ever known. He was a guy that that hated Christ, tried to destroy the Church of Jesus, but God was kind <laughs> and merciful to evil and ungrateful people. So when God brings you, and He will if He's not already done this, when He brings you to testify of Jesus before enemies of Jesus, don't think. What in the world? Why would I do this? And what good is going to come out of it? What good is going to come out of it? He's going to shape you into the image of Christ, and he might save that person that he sends you to. But they're an enemy, but they they might not always be an enemy. So that's the larger picture of Acts. It's the extension of the kingdom. He sends his servants out with the gospel to extend the kingdom. Some of the people hate the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore they hate his servants. Jesus says in John 15, if they hated me, they're going to do what to you? They're going to hate you. The way they treated me is the way they're going to treat you. And then he says, beware when all men speak well of you. So it's a bad thing when a Christian says, especially a Christian minister, everybody loves me. The pagans love you? The unbelievers love you? The antichrist people like, oh yeah, they love me. They love me. Well, you're doing something wrong. (laughs) I'm not arguing for being obnoxious, but I am arguing for being faithful. And Stephen has been faithful and now he's in a pickle. He's in a pickle because he's faithful. And so he's on trial. And so my desire today is to unpack verse 1, really, but it's a theme. What I, what I want to look at in the trial are, are two things. I want to look at the judge, who this fellow is in this religious church trial, and then I want to consider the whole subject of church trial, religious trial. And it's related to a larger subject of church discipline. It's just a, So the fellow leading the trial... 70 plus 1, 70 ruling elders plus 1, this high priest, who he is, and then I want to consider the whole idea of having a church trial. There's a legitimate use of church trials and church discipline, and then there's an illegitimate use of church trials, which is to say, to take a lawful thing and use it unlawfully, which I'll argue this is what they're doing. So obviously I'm going to unpack verse 1 and I'm going to, I need to bring in some other verses, which, which I will do. But I want, to, I want to look at the fellow leading this particular church trial against Stephen, who is a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not on trial for doing anything wrong, though he's accused of being a wrongdoer. He's on trial for doing something very, very right, namely living for Christ and preaching Christ. And by way of application, sometimes we do suffer for being uh, silly. So we can't always say, well, I'm suffering for Christ's sake. <laughs> Sometimes we're suffering because we're pains in the necks. But not always. Sometimes when we suffer, we're, we, we are, we're living in a God-pleasing, a Christ-pleasing fashion, and God brings us to that place. And the infl- affliction that we are receiving is not because we're displeasing God in Christ, but because of the opposite. We're pleasing God in Christ. And that should work to, I would argue, uh, for the, uh, the growth of our assurance that we're in a state of grace. So when God's enemies hate you because you love Christ and you minister Christ, that should testify to you that you have been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You should be encouraged by that. So let's look at this fellow. He's he's a priest, and we'll look at that he's a high priest and so on, but just let's consider the fellow. He's a priest. The Bible tells us that many of the priests, not all of the priests, but many of them come from the Sadducee party, if the Sadducee party and the Pharisee party, the Sadducee party was a, I would say a clergy a party of the clergy. They ran the temple. The Pharisee party was a uh, a laymen's party. They ran the synagogue. But many of the priests came from the Sadducee party. As again, as I say, not all, uh, but many of them did. the 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 high priest before whom Jesus Christ was tried was Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas. And the fellow, the high priest here is a fellow by the name of Jonathan who's the son of Annas. These men were Sadducees. So this man is a Sadducee. Um, And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 5, a few chapters earlier, but the high priest, this was when John, uh, Peter, Peter was arrested, I think with John. This is when they were arrested and they were put on trial before the Sanhedrin. And the Bible tells us in Acts 5.17, but the high priest arose along with his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees. So this man, who's trying Stephen, is a Sadducee, and they were filled with jealousy against Peter and John, the servants of Jesus Christ, because they're making converts to Jesus. And so that's really why Stephen's on trial before this particular guy. Now the word Sadducee, I've mentioned this before, there was a priest by the name of It's the way that we would pronounce it is T S. I don't have good pronunciation of foreign languages. I butcher it. I would be like, Me yama wan. That would be my pronunciation of Spanish. So my pronunciation of Hebrew, if you're good with Hebrew, it's essentially like that. But it's T-S, Tzadik. And Tzadik means righteous one. And so these fellows, these Sadducees, this man, were those people that called themselves the righteous ones. Pharisee means the separate ones, separate from sin, separate from sinners. It's it's interesting that this man belongs to a group of people that call themselves, we, we, we are the righteous ones. I don't know how anybody with a Bible and actually a mirror that can look in the mirror from Genesis 3, 1 through 8 onward can call themselves a righteous one. But they are the righteous ones. And remember, Paul talks about what he considered his own righteousness back in Philippians 3. I understand he was a Pharisee, but these men are glorying in their own righteousness. They thought they were intrinsically uh, holy or separated or good or righteous. And I think part of the reason perhaps they thought so is that the priests came from the tribe of Levi. This was the priestly tribe. And so God himself chose, out of the twelve tribes, one tribe to be those men that handled his holy things. One in the temporal tabernacle and then in the more, it's not permanent because it was done away with, the, the, the temple. God chose the tribe of Levi, they would handle the holy things, which was essentially the gospel under the old ceremonial law. But we're learning something, remember. This fellow is an enemy of Christ and an enemy of Christ's servants, but he's a church office holder. Church office does not constitute or convey our righteousness before God. And if I could apply it to everyone, church membership does not convey the righteousness that we need to have before a holy God. You may say I go to church every Sunday. I, I, you should go to church if you're healthy. You should. You say, well, I actually physically join the place. So good on you. I do believe in church membership. I take the Lord's supper. I hope you do. That's not our righteousness. Our righteousness is the Lord is our righteous. Christ is our righteousness. This is what Martin Luther said. It's where it's an alien righteousness. Our righteousness before a God is we recognize our our unrighteousness that we're rank sinners and the only way we stand before a righteous God is covered with the righteousness of Christ no Christian certainly no Christian minister would ever say I am the righteous one how could you say that with a Bible in your hand with Romans in your hand and looking at your face in the mirror and having the spirit no 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 thou son of David have mercy on me though what the sinner so, it's the sinner, the unconverted sinner, that says, We are the righteous ones, and this is this man. But it's the converted sinner that acknowledges that, that we're sinners and that God in Christ is our righteousness. I have people in my family that are not Christians, and I love them very much. And one of my family members said to me, You Christians think you're so good, you're the only ones going to heaven, and us non Christians. Are, are so bad we're not going to heaven I said no 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 that's not true you think you're good I know I'm bad Jesus is my goodness you all think that you are your goodness it's the real Christian that says I'm a scallywag it's only the righteousness of Christ that I stand before a righteous God but not this man these are the kind of people that said if you, you want to look at a righteous person you're looking at one and that's a bad sign This will be the kind of man that judges Christ in a trial, Caiaphas. This will be the kind of man that judges Stephen in a trial, even putting him to death. The Bible says that after the fall of Adam, no mere man is righteous. The only way that we can appear before a righteous God is in Christ. And the Sadducees, not only were they self-proclaimed righteous people, they were the religious elites. They were kind of libertines. The Pharisees, I would call them perhaps... um, legalists these these were the antinomians uh, libertines eat drink and be merry but they were the wealthy elites of Jewish society they as i say they governed the temple they held great religious great social great cultural great financial power they were the rich and powerful of the day and and we're looking at the rich and the powerful of the day who hate jesus And they hate the servants of Jesus. And they're going to condemn them to death. And I'm going to say something that you already know. I cannot say dogmatically that health, wealth, power, and all of those things always indicates an unbeliever or is always detrimental to our faith. I can't say it categorically or dogmatically. But I can say generally that's the case. Generally that is the case. Having a superabundance of health, a superabundance of wealth, a superabundance of the world's power and and, and honor is generally not good for our spiritual well-being, generally. And this man testifies to, to that case. The Bible says not many that God calls are the healthy, the wealthy, the powerful, the wise. Generally, God pulls and saves from the poor, the base, the nothings, so he gets all the glory, This man is the the, the wealthy elite. And I know there are some schools of Christian thought, perhaps even Christian eschatology, that say if we could just convert the intelligentsia, the academy, the politician, then we can convert everyone else. That's the exact opposite of the model that God uses. The exact opposite. God doesn't go looking for the high and the mighty. He looks for the street sweeper, for the fishermen, and saves them. But this man is not that guy. He's the healthy and the wealthy and all of those kind of things. And we find that he may be healthy and wealthy in the world's goods, but what, what is he utterly destitute of? And this is informative. Faith. Faith. I shared the Lord Jesus Christ with a person in my family, no longer in my family, who's a multi, 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 multi-millionaire. Multi. If I told you his name, you'd look him up and go, wow, that guy's off the charts super, handsome, super everything. And I said, you're a wretched, destitute, naked sinner. You need Jesus. You're driving an old truck on a good day and a bike on a bad day, and I'm the wretched sinner? I'm the nothing? Oh, beloved, until we think we are the nothings, Jesus makes no sense to us. Look around. The rich people say, oh, we totally need Jesus. Oh, no. 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 Jesus looks at people like this and says, prostitutes get into heaven before you. Why? Because the prostitute says, I'm nothing. But this guy, no. I might have quoted it at Sunday school, but this this teaches us a lesson as as we're trying to glean lessons from the guy who tries, one of Christ's servants, healthy and wealthy. We think, well, if we could be Christians and then healthy and wealthy, that's the best. It's not the best. It isn't the best. (laughs) We want it to be the best, But it isn't the best. The Puritan, I forget which one, he said, grace grows better in winter. When was Israel better? When they were in the wilderness or when they got into the promised land? The Bible says, when they got into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, what happened? They forgot God. They grew fat and sleek, which means they grew worldly. You give a Christian a superabundance of health, a superabundance of health and Opportunity and privilege, and what generally is going to happen to that Christian. Bible goes out the window. Prayers go out the window. Humility goes out the window. And what comes into the window? A boatload of living for self in this world. But when you take away the health, when you touch the wealth, when you take away the dishonor, what do you have? You have a man that's willing to stand up before a man he knows is going to kill him and say, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'll live for Christ. I'll die for Christ. This is a Hebrews 11. How are you going to get Hebrews 11? Sitting in an easy chair with everyone as your friend with a superabundance of wealth and health? No, the exact opposite. So it's J.C. Rowell that says, rather than envying the poor, we, the rich, we should weep for them. This is the rich, powerful person. And one of the ways that we see his apostasy from true religion, I would argue, tied to his particular position, is some of the religious beliefs. Remember, this guy is the priest, the high priest. He's running this Jerus- this excuse me, this Sanhedrin council against Christ's servants. So he's a religious man, the highest religious man of the day, and he's a Sadducee. And here are some of the things that the Sadducees believed or didn't believe. I'm going to read from the Bible. You ready? This is, a, this is from the Bible about these guys. Acts three eight. I could have gone to Matthew or Mark or Luke. For the Sh- Sadducees say, listen to this. This is this. There's no resurrection from the dead. There are no such thing as angels or spirits. No resurrection, no angel, no spirit. So this fellow would say there's no life after death. Beloved, I'm going to tell you something. If there is no life after death, we are the biggest fools on the planet. I'm the biggest fool of them all. I killed myself to go to seminary and to minister the word of God. If no one's risen from the dead, what are we even here for? Let's just go to the beach. Eat, drink, and be merry. If there's nothing after death, if the soul dies when the body dies, which is what these guys believed, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you what? You die. You, this was this man. No resurrection. No life after death. No judgment. And you can see why this guy would say, Jesus is not the Christ. Jesus is not the sin atoner. You don't need to atone for sins. Jesus is not the everlasting life resurrection procurer. There's no such thing as resurrection from the dead. That's him. How do you think Christ would fare being on trial before Caiaphas a Sadducee when Jesus says I am the resurrection and the life no one comes to the father but through me I'm going to die and live again and he's before a guy that says I am the highest in the land this does not happen Stephen is before the very same kind of person there's no life after death Jesus doesn't pay for sins and God says to his servant go tell this guy who denies this truth that this is true that's what's going on. But but the, but the informative thing is, this guy is the leader of religion of the day. He, he is a, a professing believer who is at the very same time a professing unbeliever. Could we not find ministers right now, a minister, air quotes, and ask them, are you a Christian? Oh yeah, Christian, yeah. You believe the Bible? Oh yeah, Bible, interesting book. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, oh yeah, Jesus, well guy. But then further quiz him. Is Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Does Jesus die as a, as a blood sacrifice? Is it the blood of Jesus that takes our sins away? Is it faith in that that makes us children of God? No, no, don't be crazy. Many ways to heaven, they'd say. That's a professing believer who is at the same time a professing unbeliever. The church is full with people like that. That's this guy. That's who this fellow was on trial before. And you can understand if there was no resurrection, no life after death, you could understand why people would say, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. That's this fellow. Now, we also learn, we mentioned that church office doesn't convey our righteousness, but church office does not convey faith. One of my favorite ministers in our presbytery, Dr. Kravendan, is an older guy, up into his 80s, I think now, Um, he one time shared in preaching that he was converted as a minister he he became a minister and he was unconverted and he preached for years as an unconverted minister and it was when he was preaching in his own church as an unconverted man that he became born again church office doesn't convey faith being born to a Christian mom I hope you're born to a Christian mom and a Christian dad has great privilege but that doesn't convey faith either we're not born again because we're born we're born again because God the Holy Spirit makes us born again so here's a guy in church office he has no faith he has no faith a lot, lots of lessons here for us they didn't believe a good portion of the Bible they're scripture deniers they're scripture twisters and so on do you think Stephen will receive a fair trial from this guy do you think so and if you don't think he'll receive a fair trial, why won't he receive a fair trial? Stephen is converted and loves Jesus. This guy is unconverted, therefore he does what to Jesus? He hates Jesus. Beloved, I'm going to say this, and it's, it's not that we walk around like this to the unbeliever getting ready for a fist fight. We're in a spiritual war. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. There's only two teams to be on. It's not the Hatfields and the McCoys. It's those who love Christ and those who don't love Jesus. We're either on the broad road going to perdition, which leads away from the cross, or we're on the narrow road that leads right to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, in, we're, we're children of light. There's no neutrality in this, in this war. There's no neutrality. No one's a fence straddler. And so we're looking at people that are broad road folks, though they're running the church, as it were. But they're haters of God, haters of Christ, haters of Christ's servants. And we know that they hate God because they hate Christ. We know that they hate Christ because they hate Christ's servants. And we're not going to receive a fair trial from them. That's not God's purpose anyways. God's purpose is not that Stephen would receive a fair trial. God's purpose is that Stephen would testify to the truth of Jesus. We, We live and we die according to the will of our God. And the whole purpose of our life is to live for the glory of God in Christ. Now, I mentioned this fellow He's a Sadducee, I've mentioned that he comes from the tribe of Levi. Technically, this fellow, because he's a high priest, technically he's supposed to come from the family of Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother. Is he older? I think he's the older brother. So you have Moses, oh, you have Aaron, Moses, and then Miriam. And God brought Aaron to be the first high priest, and from the family of Aaron of the tribe of Levi, he took the high priests. The high priest, this earthly high priest, He's typological of someone. Do you know what someone he's typological of from the book of Hebrews? Christ. This man's calling. This man's calling. It, it, he, he is a type of Christ. His whole calling is for the purpose of pointing to Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth saying, He is the Christ. I am the type. He's the anti-type. Let me read that to you in case you think I'm making this up. Hebrews Hebrews 9.11 but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered into the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. This earthly priest, his name, this high priest is Jonathan, this fellow's calling is to point people to Jesus. Caiaphas, who was the son-in-law of Anaphis, Annas, His calling was to point people to Jesus. And he crucified Jesus. This guy's job is to point people to Jesus. He's crucifying. He'll he'll have stoned a faithful servant of Jesus. Beloved, do you know what aggravation of sin is? you know what aggravation of sin is? What do you think it is? you think the worst sin is committed by, I don't know, pick an unbeliever. Pick an unbeliever and pick the worst sin that you can think of. Is that the worst sin? I don't know. When you see unbelievers sin Are you stunned? No Dogs bark and cats meow And unbelievers sin, that's what they do The worst sin Occurs from those within The visible household of God, that's the worst sin We make it worse We have the means of grace, we have the word We have the sacraments, we have prayer We say that we believe We have law and gospel But the worst sin is not just the congregant In the household of faith The worst sin is here The very man who's called by God, whose whole job is to point people to Jesus, he's busy pointing people away from Jesus. If you have some time, read Larger Catechism, our Larger Catechism, Westminster 151, how we make our sins more obnoxious. What does Jesus say? To much is given, much is what? Oh! This man whose whole job is to point people to Christ is going to kill a guy who's pointing people to Christ. We learn that. I mentioned already Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the uh, man. What is it, John 11? We see this. Um, Caiaphas was put into office by um, Pontius Pilate. And he was put out of office. So he served, I want to say, from A.D. 18 to 36. Caiaphas did, the earlier high priest. This fellow was put into office by a governor of Syria in A.D. 36. And this comes from Josephus in his antiquities. I think it's legit. Um, Certainly you have Caiaphas and Annas. But these men were put into office. Caiaphas and then subsequent Jonathan was a son of Annas. He was put into office by uh, by Vitellius, a governor of Syria in 36. This brings us to something else about who this judge is. I said earlier technically he's supposed to be from the family of uh, uh, tribe of Levi, family of um, Aaron. Technically. Biblically, But at this particular time, it didn't actually happen like that. Because the Jews were under the boot of the Romans, the Romans could and would influence who was the high priest, because they wanted to... Um, I think some countries, maybe even ours, we go to other countries and say, you know what? We're going to take your leader and get him over here, because he's not favorable to us. We're going to give like a guy that's favorable to us. Well, the Romans did this. And so it was Pontius Pilate that put up Caiaphas... And then it was the other guy that put up this guy. And so this this religious office really becomes a political office. And you remember Caiaphas's council, the former high priest, said the reason we should kill Christ is so we can keep our power before the Roman nation. It's a political political, uh, reason. This man's a political appointee, from which we learn something else about the whole business of The church and church discipline, how it's administered. Not only is health and wealth generally not favorable to our spiritual well being, I'm going to tell you from this particular fellow when this office was bought and sold for money and for power, which it was, and it was essentially a political office, which essentially it was, when we join spiritual things, Bible sacrament, to political things, the Bible sacrament are losers. They're losers. Um, Paul tells Timothy, be a good soldier, preach the word, administer the sacraments, stay in your lane, essentially. Don't become wrapped up into the everyday affairs of politics and social things, cultural things. I'm not saying you can't ever speak to them, but your your calling is this. And don't you can't be you can't be a preacher and a politician at the same time. Because if you try to be a preacher and a politician at the same time, you're a politician. Always. You can write that down. You can write that down. If you try to be a preacher and a politician, which is this guy, you're a politician. The calling of the minister, Christ, 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 Christ. Bible. The blood of Christ saves us. We're called to live holy. Sacraments. If you feel called to enter into political discourse, quit the ministry of the word. Because Jesus says you're going to love one and hate the other. You'll be faithful to one and faithless to the other. And you know this is true. You know it's true. There's a minister, I'm not going to tell you where, he's a minister. On Friday he has a politics show. It's politics. It's politics. And this is the guy who's going to try Stephen. Now I'm going to do church discipline, which is the church trial in five minutes. What's going on is a trial. It's a religious trial. And religious trial is a species of church discipline. And even as I say that, when we hear church discipline, we think, whoa, what in the world is going on here? Depending on the church that you were raised in, that concept may or may not be foreign to you. There are some churches that have no church discipline. And what do I mean by that? I don't mean physical discipline like hurting anybody. Anybody that does that in the New Testament is crazy. But I mean some kind of spiritual oversight by some elder ruler in the church under Christ with the word of God who correct erring church members, doctrinally erring or practically erring church members um, by the word of God. That's a form of church discipline and it kind of ratchets up based on Contumacy, which is stubbornness. So if you're stubborn, you kind of, in the highest form is ex- excommunication in the church. So there's legitimate church discipline, but there are gobs of churches that don't do that. You just come just as you are. You live just as you are, and nobody says anything, and they hope to not know anything, and then you just go away. That's not Bible. Christ's church is a kingdom, and kingdoms have rules, and the Kingdoms have rulers, sub-rulers. He has elders, preaching elders, teaching, ruling elders. And then we minister God's word. And there's a legitimate form of church council, church trial. I think of, uh, is it Acts 15? The Jerusalem council? That's a church trial. But it's a good church trial. So the Pharisees and some other people were saying, well, you need to believe in Jesus, plus keep the ceremonial law. And then they had a trial about it. And the the apostles and the elders argued it out. And they said, no, that's not true. That's not true. So there's a legitimate place in the Bible for a church trial, which is an expression of church discipline, to correct erring doctrine, erring life. And it comes from the Old Testament. um, What was it? The 70 elders that Moses' father-in-law said, judging the people are too much for you, Moses. Get some men and, and help guide this people of God. But what we look here is the unlawful use of a lawful thing. You can use the Bible unlawfully, which they're going to use. You can use the sacraments unlawfully. You can make seven instead of two. Um, you can make a transubstantiation instead of what it should be. So we can, sinners can take anything lawful and abuse it. These are religious sinners. They're taking a religious thing, a church trial, and they're using it. It's meant to promote righteousness and holiness. And let's back up from before this. The, the, the high priest says to Stephen, are these things so? And the thing, these things refer to the charges. And you remember what they're charging um, Stephen with. You blaspheme Moses, you blaspheme God, you blaspheme the temple, you're a blasphemer. Now as Americans, modern Americans, we're not used to hearing the, the idea of blasphemy unless it's associated with Islam generally, right? We're, we generally don't think well, like blasphemy laws, the Old Testament has blasphemy laws. So it's not foreign to the Bible, the concept of blasphemy laws. They're accusing Stephen of being a blasphemer. You're a blaspheming God. And you remember there was a there was a guy, I want to say he was half Jewish, half Gentile. And he was fighting a Jewish guy in the Old Testament. And he cursed, he blasphemed God. Remember that guy? And Moses took the guy and said, what do we do with this guy? And God said, well, I'll tell you what you should do. Anybody that blasphemes, blasphemes me, should, 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 what should happen? They should be stoned. So stoning for blasphemy is actually a biblical thing. But how are they going to get at the blasphemy? They get the false witnesses. They, they bring the false witnesses up and say, well, the Bible says, what do you want from us? We believe the Bible. We just want to be Bible people. <laughs> Beloved, this is how heretics do it. This is how Christ haters do it. This is how people that want to kill a faithful minister do it. They pretend they believe in the Bible. Right there. First Hesitations 3:6, right there, right there. It's in the Bible. But the Bible says if you take a false witness and he wants to put this guy to death and we find out the false witness is a false witness, what should happen to the false witness? Keep reading. It's a tactic that enemies of Christ and enemies of Christ servants use. They cut and paste. They accuse him of being a blasphemer to insult or be irreverent t- towards God. And that's what Jesus was accused of. Jesus was accused of being a blasphemer. And I want to end with this. In this sermon, they're going to accuse him of blasphemy, which will turn out to his defense that he's not being unbiblical and he's not being a blasphemer. I want to end with this. This is for Matthew. The chief priest and the whole council, Sanhedrin, kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. It's a foregone conclusion. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Jesus kept silent. The high priest said, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us whether you are the Christ or the Son of God. And I'm going to give you the answer that Jesus gives. This is what this whole thing is designed for, for Stephen. When God puts us as believers of Christ in a crucible before an unbeliever, do you believe in Jesus? Here's the reason why. Jesus kept silent. The priest said to him, I joy you by the living God. Jesus said, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter... You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard his testimony. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Beloved, God takes Christ. He preaches himself before this Christ enemy. Many of these people, these priests, will come to faith. When you yourself are presented before people that hate Jesus and you testify of Jesus, you you, that you may be killed by some of them. God means to save some of those people. God means to be gracious and loving and merciful and kind to his elect and those crowds. He'll take some of those enemies and he'll make them your brother and sister. You might not see them. They might kill you when they're yet an enemy like Saul of Tarsus. But God, through this amazing means of sharing this gospel of Jesus even in the face of enmity he's going to bring many sons and daughters to faith in Jesus Christ what a loving God we have and you have an amazing life your life has tremendous meaning it doesn't, I don't even care what you do for a living you have the words of eternal life there are, there are countless people that live around you they're perishing and they're going to hell and they don't know the way of heaven but you do Oh, beloved, oh, testify of Christ. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.